Bing bong. I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Greg Foss, at Foss, Greg Foss on Twitter. If you haven't heard him before, where have you been? He's all over the Bitcoin space and an absolute brilliant mind. He brings 35 years of experience in a risks chair, or as he calls it, mistakes. And we go in depth on what is going on in the macro, allocations, you know, how you should view Bitcoin and much, much more. Greg is a brilliant mind. And yeah, he, he he says a lot of the same things, which he gives himself a hard time about it in in this interview. But, you know, it's always great to hear. And uh, it takes a few times to hear something before you narrow it down and uh, truly understand it. So be sure to tune in to an action-packed episode. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And a big shout out too to everybody that's sent me podcasting to or sent me sats uh, via podcasting 2.0. I give you a little shout out at the beginning. So feel free to, to stream me sats or send me boosts. Helps this go and it helps this work. Uh, and hopefully I can attend more conferences and meet you all more in person. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. This is strictly for entertainment purposes only and should not, not, not be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. Bing bong. I am live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. And I'd like to thank everybody listening on any podcasting 2.0 apps that streamed me or boosted me stats. Uh, I got Fountain right here. I've got two that have accounts with Fountain, Jock Hoddle, who's uh, streamed some stats, and Endive, and I really appreciate it. So big shout out to you guys and everybody who's been streaming me stats and everything like that. It's greatly appreciated, and it helps keep the show rolling. And then also, I've got a very special deal for you guys. You guys have heard it before. My uh, sponsor, Coddle.co, that's C-O-D-L dot C-O. You can get yourself a punch plate for 10% off with promo code Green Candle. So get your Bitcoin off of exchanges, get everything off of exchanges, and use a punch plate, uh, a steel-plated one. You could buy some for family and friends. So use promo code Green Candle for 10% off on that. And lastly, I've got a very, very special guest here. I've got you've you've heard him before if you've been in the Bitcoin space. I've got Greg Foss. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Of course, of course, it's an honor to have you on here. And let's let's just dive right in, right? I mean, I've I've heard you on a bunch of other places. You've got 35 years worth of uh, you know experience in a risk management chair, but you know it seems like a lot of your colleagues don't really understand bitcoin or anything like that so you know what kind of brought you over to this side and why do you think i guess there's that knowledge gap uh in between you know maybe the the traditional finance world and the bitcoin space okay um so two things first of all a lot of people in the fiat tradfi world are paid not to understand bitcoin which means to say which is to say basically they don't want it to succeed they view it as a uh uh, you know, a threat to, and rightly so, viewed as a threat to their TradFi business. The, the Bitcoin will disintermediate everything. Um, so if you're Jamie Dimon, you're paid not to want it to succeed. And therefore, whether you actually have gone deep down the rabbit hole or not, uh, the easy out is just to say, uh, you know, it's a fraud and everything that he does say. So that's, uh, you know, a structural problem. Um, the... The reality is that it it's slowly and not just slowly, quite 
aggressively happening. Um, and soon it'll be too much for everyone to ignore. So I bring out uh, the example of just last week where BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, announced uh, Bitcoin allocation within their global I think it's called the Global Strategies Fund or their Global Asset Fund or whatever. But, you know, nonetheless, uh, it is a allocation to a new asset class for uh, diversification benefits, as well as I like to think of it as insurance against the Fiat Ponzi. Um, as BlackRock does it and Fidelity's already doing it, you're likely to see other big asset managers do it, which means that pension sponsors and whatnot will also have to make a decision. So, you know, you, your kind introduction of me uh, is that I have 35 years of experience. Um, that is true. I have 35 years of experience making mistakes, okay? And making mistakes includes, uh, you know, thumbing your nose or um, uh, just basically sloughing off a new technology or a new uh, entrant into the... Uh, into the square, um, whether it's a technology like uh, the internet, you know, um, uh, the very intelligent uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, Paul Krugman basically said that the impact of the internet will be somewhere around the impact of a fax machine. Okay. I mean, there you go. A guy who's at, who at the time had a big, uh, you know, a big reputation, but clearly a small brain. And, uh, uh, you know, this is just, you see it time and time again. So I'm able to say, I've seen these types of things over 35 years. My mistake was, uh, you know, not embracing some of these asymmetric opportunities when I was presented with them. Uh, you're only presented with a few asymmetric investment opportunities in your lifetime. And if you continue to, um, uh, let them, you know, slide away, then you're going to be, uh, well, you you will not have managed your risk profile properly, but more frustrating is that you had the chance to do the homework and you chose to take the soft way out. Um, long answer to your question, but, you know, it's pretty explainable by me uh, having compatriots and former business partners who, you know, they laugh and they say, oh, yeah, this Bitcoin thing. And the truth is, you know, they're the ones living in the Ponzi. The fiat system is the Ponzi and uh, Bitcoin is the solution. But it takes, you know, hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of homework. And, uh, you know, some people are e more easy to convince than others. Predominantly, the people that are easy to convince, and I'll wrap the answer up this way, are those who don't realize yet that they're paid not to understand Bitcoin. So eventually most people are paid not to understand Bitcoin because their fiat job depends on them not understanding Bitcoin. But over time, uh, the young kids, they're not, uh, you know, they have a, a, a wider lens and uh, the old guys will be uh, either uh, thrown out to pasture or disintermediated. And, uh, and that'll be unfortunate that they didn't do their homework. Yeah. And I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it, right? The fiat Ponzi. And it seems like it's obviously, you know, from a from a personal level, it could be, you know, just borrowing a bunch of money from debts for banks to buy, you know, homes, other assets, things like that. And it's just kind of like this endless cycle. And there's kind of like, I don't know, in the in the financial personal finance space, it's more of like using smart debt. So the people who use smart debt and kind of mm -hmm. gain farther and farther behind, 
um, but use it correctly, you know, are the ones that, you know, become generational or create generational wealth for themselves. But it seems like countries have kind of gotten down this path as well. And, you know, all other fiat currencies are kind of failing. So, you know, why do you think that Bitcoin, I guess, uh, you know, could possibly, I, I guess, go go deeper and like fix all of this? Because it seems like we're, we've gotten such down such a, I guess, a bleak path that it seems like there's the the way that they're going to f- figure out or the way that they're going to get out of this is by essentially just printing more money and trying to claw their way back out but it doesn't really seem like there's any clear path to i guess cl- the the bitcoin standard so to speak okay well let's take uh, that into uh, things first of all they cannot possibly call, claw their way back it's mathematically impossible okay so i like to rely upon mathematics uh you know i was an engineer in undergrad and uh Math is truth, okay, as far as I'm concerned. And it's mathematically impossible for them to claw their way out of this debt spiral. Um, So fiat debasement uh, is a certainty because when you're in a debt spiral, the only way to solve the the difference between revenues and paying the, the interest expense that you need to pay on your debt is by printing more money, okay? It's called the error term. And so fiat debasement is a certainty because... The currency printing uh, the currency is the error term to solve the debt spiral. So that's that's a hundred percent certain, uh, and you need to insure yourself against that. Now, the the reality is uh, this system has existed for a hundred years. Uh, you know the current fiat system, although fiats have existed for thousands of years, but um, ultimately every fiat does fail, and the reason they fail is over and over again because of the undisciplined nature of the people running the system. So it will happen. It won't happen all at once. And it will start with the periphery countries. We are already seeing some of those currencies fail, but it'll eventually move into the G20 countries. So Turkey, for example, Argentina is a G20 ranked country and Turkey's G11 and both of them are in big trouble. Um, but my biggest fear, but it's coming, is that it will gravitate up to the G7 countries, of which Canada is number seven. So Canada's currency will fail. Um, and ultimately, the U.S. dollar will fail. But it'll be the last fiat to fail. And it's not happening quickly. Um, and nor do we want it to happen quickly because the world's not ready for, uh, you know, uh, a failed U.S. fiat currency. So it happens in stages, the stages being other countries failing first and then the contagion impacts and that, you know, pushing the, the stresses in the system to towards the ultimate uh, failure, which will be the U.S. dollar. But you'll also see U.S. treasuries fail as global reserve asset before the U.S. dollar fails, which is to say you won't have Russia investing in U.S. treasuries you won't have China investing in U.S. treasuries. They'll be divesting their holdings and letting them roll off their balance sheet, which will put pressure on the USA to fund its own borrowing binge, which means more QE, more QE infinity, which means you need to hold a hard asset. So it's a pretty simple grade 11 math type of exercise for me. Uh, that's one of my taglines. I know a lot of the guys will yell bingo for their bingo, FOSS bingo cards. And that's fine because I keep having to repeat this to people that it's so darn simple, yet people keep ignoring 
the truth, the math, the truth of this situation. So um, I try not to think or overthink it. Um, I maintain that owning zero Bitcoin is far more risky than having a proper portfolio allocation. And by my definition, a proper portfolio allocation for everybody is 5%. Start between zero and 5%, but don't be at zero. Get, you know, uh, up to 5%. And then once you've done the homework and understand what Bitcoin is from a technology standpoint, as well as a monetary store of value, you'll get more comfortable moving up. But I, I, while I don't frown on people who are such Bitcoin maxis that they are 100% committed to this asset class, I'm not. Not because I don't believe that the asymmetry to the upside is so beautiful, just that I don't manage risk by going all in on anything. I never have. And the beautiful thing here is, Brandon, you don't actually need to own a large position of Bitcoin in your portfolio to participate in this asymmetric investment of a lifetime. So in other words, having a 5% position in something that goes up 100 fold in value, all of a sudden, everything else being equal, you are now at 99% Bitcoin. You haven't sold any, any, but you're five times as wealthy as you were just holding a 2% allocation goes up a hundred times. Excuse me. I guess, sorry, I used it. What did I use? 5% a hundred times. It goes up 500%. So five times point is man. Oh man. Now, do you have the discipline to hold? I, uh, you know, I, I do uh, trade Bitcoin, but I've been a professional trader slash investor my whole life. But risk is about, you know, uh, managing the uh, highs and lows of any either cycle or trading. All I would say is never let yourself get below a certain amount of exposure and treat euphoria as a time where you can peel some off and capture some, you know, market excess to the upside and treat a depressed market, like an opportunity to buy some more cheap insurance. And, you know, we've been through a tough year, um, but that's okay because it's allowed people to reevaluate their risk, uh, their risk buckets. I have met quite a few Bitcoiners that admitted they got too far over their skis and the drawdown has been painful. So um, it's a process, right? Uh, you know, you live, you learn. I bring 35 years of mistakes to the table. I try not to recreate the mistakes I've already made. But look, everybody makes mistakes. I've made some mistakes with Bitcoin. Um, but we're here to survive and fight another day. And uh, pretty excited about what the future uh, holds for us. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to it um, you know, a little bit earlier about this rough year. Uh, that we've been having, obviously, in Bitcoin terms, it's it's gone down, you know, significantly since the all time high. Uh, I think we hit 19,000 a little bit earlier today. So maybe we're on the, the climb back up, but it, it's it's looking a little, you know, kind of floating around that 16 to 20 K. But yeah. a lot of it seems to ride on, you know, the Federal Reserve and kind of the policies that Jerome Powell, wh whether he says something in, um, you know, one of these meetings or or something like that. You know, it seems like financial Twitter is kind of and, and Bitcoin Twitter is screaming for a pivot. And uh, it's it, it 
to me personally, it doesn't seem like the Fed's slowing down anytime soon and they keep raising interest rates, kind of destroying all these other fiat currencies. So, um, you know, what is your opinion on how, uh, I guess, the job that Powell has done, you know, recently, obviously revisionist history, they probably should have, you know, maybe rose rates, you know, a little bit earlier and whatnot, but it seems like they're just kind of going pedal to the metal right now. So what do you think, like, I guess the, the outcome of this is and, and the job that he's doing right now? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think he's doing a horrible job. So let's get that out of the, out of the way. I think he's managing this like a, you know, uh, a bit of a drunk driving a clown car um, because what has he done? Well, he's sort of like at the original, uh, outset of this clown car escapade he says we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates okay well hey knucklehead you should have been thinking about thinking about raising rates because you waited too long to think about thinking about raising rates and then you got way behind the eight ball uh and then when he's behind the eight ball he's decided that he's going to raise rates the fastest of any central bank you uh, fed central banker in the last four decades, okay? So the rate of, uh, of of the pace of rate increases is the fastest of any other tightening cycle. And that's dangerous because there's typically a 12-month lag in uh, policy, mo uh, monetary policy and the economy. And we haven't even seen, there by that uh, uh, reality, we haven't even seen the impacts of the rates going from, let's say, 3 to 375, let alone where they currently are uh, at four and three eighths. Uh, you know, it's not a good situation because things tend to break. Um, everybody's, you know, you get the pundits on TV that are already applauding the Fed for th threading this needle. It's not even close that they've threaded the needle yet. Now, it is possible that they do it, but I actually think it's highly unlikely um, because of this lag monetary policy. And then... Um, you know, the, the reality that, the, that this system is way over levered. It always, you know, the successive financial crises always happen faster and the, the unwind is more painful, the deleveraging. So, you know, way too early to declare victory by the Fed. Remember that inflation compounds, like everyone's celebrating that it's come down to six and a half percent. But guys, you know, going from eight, percent to six and a half percent means it's a 14 percent annualized inflation rate over you know over the last uh uh start to finish um that's not that good okay and then you could go eight percent six and a half percent four percent three percent one percent negative four percent and you're still at something like a five percent annualized inflation rate why because the first 8% is compounded all the way through the next periods, okay? So this is part of the mathematics that people don't understand as well. So it's just so simple in my mind that if you actually took and paid attention to your grade 11 mathematics courses, you would see through this charade that the Fed is trying to uh, accomplish. But it's no different than all the other cycles. That's the problem with monetary policy that is set to a degree and manipulated. Um, and that's why we need to fix it. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. Um, you know, the arguments for that. But again, I just go back to looking at a debt spiral that the average coupon on the debt 
at the end of the year was one and a half percent, but 35% of that debt is going to roll over in the next uh, two years. So of the $31 trillion of debt, more than 10 trillion of that debt needs to be refinanced. And if you assume that it's going to refinance at a rate that mimics the U.S. 10-year rate, you're going from a 1.5% coupon on that debt to 3.5%, okay? And it already was a debt spiral before with historically low interest rates. Now that you accelerate the interest rates, it becomes even more severe. So the Fed can suck and blow all they want and say that they've done a good job in containing inflation, which is not true. But the reality is I don't care. Because the bigger picture is fiat debasement, the certainty of fiat debasement, and therefore the need to hedge that reality. Yeah, and you described the the personal you know hedging that anybody could do with five percent uh, of their port portfolio. But you know, I, I guess you're you're starting to see other countries start to hedge hedge that. Maybe some companies start to hedge it by you know investing in Bitcoin and other things like that. So I guess where do you th think the future of you know, the Bitcoin adoption kind of lies. I know we're, we're seeing smaller countries and maybe some companies start to adopt it. But do you think that maybe the, the Fed or the United States decides to pivot and do some move like maybe back the U.S. dollar back on the gold standard or even put the U.S. dollar backed by Bitcoin or something along oh, those lines? Yeah. Or do you think that there's anything? Look, anything's possible, Brandon. So without, you know, again, I, I just want to reiterate that it doesn't matter because fiat debasement is assured. It's a certainty. And you need to hedge that certainty. Um, if you do it with other hard assets besides Bitcoin, that's better than owning soft assets like bonds, uh, where, yeah, I'm a hero. I invested in uh, U.S. 10-year treasuries at a 3.5% yield. I held it for 10 years, but the $100 I initially invested at time zero is now got $65 of purchasing power. So, I mean, like you just, you got to understand it, but you got to look at it both ways. Um, so yeah, own hard assets and companies need to manage their exposure similar to individuals. And then countries need to manage their exposure similar to companies, similar to individuals, which is to say, you know, you see on the company, the company side, you'll see a micro strategy. Then you saw Tesla, but not really the adoption that we thought would happen yet. But it's still so early. And maybe people learn when they see a BlackRock. I think this is my second podcast today. Did I mention to you on your podcast that BlackRock had made an allocation to their fund? Okay, good. Like you see these things and slowly then suddenly, right? I, I, I'm in Boston right now. Um, even though I'm a Canadian, I'm down in Boston because we're having a Boston meetup Uh celebrating a, uh, a great group of Bitcoiners in this town, but also Jason Lowry, who's a U.S. Space Force, soon to be a native of Florida or a citizen of, or not a citizen, I guess, or just a, uh, I guess, in a live, living there, neighbor in, in Florida of yours. Um, he, uh, he's going to go work at Cape Canaveral. He is trying to orange pill the Department of Defense and argues that Bitcoin would be exactly what you're saying, where countries need to hold it as a store of value to stabilize their fiat currencies and also defend themselves against other countries that are going to win this race. So Jason last night was giving, uh, this is Jason Lowry, um, is giving some really cool uh, stories about, you know, some of his the uh, war, uh, when I say war, like soft war uh, thesis where, you know, 
He thinks that Russia and China have already stockpiled a meaningful amount of Bitcoin and they're allowing the U.S. to fumble the ball uh, in, 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 in order to uh, assure that the U.S. won't uh, be a challenge to their, uh, you know, to their um, uh, holdings of Bitcoin and slight gold. Both of those countries are, are stockpiling a bunch of gold and all for the same reasons, because they don't want to hold U.S. treasuries as a store of value, because that is a bad risk management decision, much like uh, it is, in my opinion, for small investors to hold too many bonds or fixed income instruments where your principal value is debased because of the debasing currency. So whether it's going to be a country like El Salvador leading to a bigger South American country, like potentially Brazil leading to a bigger brick like Russia uh, and more important brick, I guess I should say, because of the petroleum exports. But imagine if Putin turns around and someday says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to start pricing oil in Bitcoin. And that's brilliant from my perspective as an engineer. I can see, uh, you know, why would you sell your valuable natural resource energy for, you know, debasing fiat dollars when you could sell it for the equivalent of digital energy or uh, or, or Bitcoin? Uh, these things happen. They happen slowly than suddenly. But Bitcoin still is only 14 years old. So coming back to my risk hat, I've been doing this for over 30 years and Bitcoin has only existed for, you know, just over you know, more than 50% of my career, but really like one third of my risk management career, because I didn't take Bitcoin seriously in 2009, 2010. I did some research on it. Luckily, I never closed the door on it um, entirely. But the reality is Bitcoin is just now getting to be a big enough asset class as in itself for more big money to get interested in it. You can't own all the Bitcoin at $2 US per Bitcoin and then you own it all and then it doesn't do anything because you own it all. Like you have to wait for it to get dispersed around the globe, allow it to create the network effects that are making it so exciting. So it's a uh, it's always going to be game theory. Um, try not to overthink the game theory, though. The reality is back to first principles, fiat debasement is 100% certain. It doesn't mean that Bitcoin succeeds, but as of now, I believe it to be the best horse in the race and the fastest horse in the race, as Paul Tudor Jones says. But again, do I own a little bit of gold? Of course I do. I own other commodities, silver, oil, etc. Um, I'm not short bonds anymore, but I certainly do not have an allocation to bonds uh, anywhere near what some of these 60-40 portfolios advocate. That's just dated mathematics and dated uh, risk management policies. So it's not easy. Like we're trying to break down so many different walls, but you chip away and it you make your progress. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, you went into a lot there. So so there's a lot to unpack, but about, you know, Russia and, you know, other countries kind of adopting Bitcoin. Um, Russia, I believe earlier uh, announced that they would uh, they've legalized trade in crypto and Bitcoin for oil and other things. They haven't done a trade in it yet, okay. but uh, and they're not pricing it in in that yet. But what kind of effect do you think that that would take 
if, you know, like a Russia or some other yeah. country would start to price things in Bitcoin, especially such a bigger. You oh, know, no. if, if they do throw in the petrodollar, it's so over. It's not funny. So, uh, I mean, Bitcoin doesn't trade at uh, 100,000. It trades at, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say 800,000. Just I'm, I'm spitballing here because the the face ripping rally in it is it's unleashing the dogs, right? It's all of a sudden, oh my God, this is the reality that I have feared. Uh, everybody is trying to manage their risk by hoping it goes away, right? Like that's that's the USA position. Oh, let's uh, pretend we're not studying it so that if we don't study it, we'll we'll cross our fingers and hope it goes away. Well, the rea- the, the as Jason Lowry says, it's too late for that. It's here to stay. You're not going to win. I'm here to help you negotiate your surrender, but you can negotiate your surrender and then embrace it and still be a winner. Okay. So lots of cool stuff. Um, Game theory is a remarkable study of emotions and mathematics and probability expected values, et cetera. All I know is Bitcoin at under 20,000. I'll run through some quick math for you. I have a price target on Bitcoin of over 2 million US dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars, today's dollars. So we can compare today's dollars, the price of Bitcoin is trading it to make the math easy, 20,000. And my price target's 2 million in today's dollars. It's basically the market telling me that I have a 1% chance of being right, right? So you take 20,000, you divide it by my price target of 2 million and you get one in 100, which is a 1%. And I'm like, okay, guys, I can look you in the eye and say I'm not 100% certain Bitcoin gets to my price target, but I'm way more comfortable than 1%. So ship it in. Stop belly aching that the price has gone down. You should look at this as a gift. And we'll talk in a few years, maybe 20 years. But this is the kind of trade where you have to be patient. You have to change your allocation as the information changes. Don't be a Peter Schiff who at 10 bucks said, don't buy Bitcoin, and then celebrates the fact that Bitcoin goes from 50,000 down to 16,000 and says, see, I told you, don't buy it at 10 bucks. What a loser. Like you got to call out these fucking clowns as it exists because, oh, you didn't buy it at 10. And thank God that means you didn't own it all the way from 10 to 50 to see it go from 50 back down to 16. Like just the worst risk management attitudes and the amount of hubris involved in these talking heads is sickening because that's not how you manage risk. And it's not how you manage reality for your children and for future generations. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I couldn't agree more. But it seems like, you know, although, you know, Bitcoiners kind of uh, like to categorize it, you know, a, as a, an asset and other things, savings technology, what have you, it seems like it's been fairly correlated to a lot of the, the way that uh, growth stocks move in the stock market okay. and everything like that. So, you know, I guess as we're coming to this, the Fed obviously rapidly moving, uh, raising interest rates and kind of continually going along with that. Bitcoin's been hit very hard in the, in its price target, and it, this is kind of the first, I guess, uh, within Bitcoin's life cycle that it's going through a huge macro uh, event where it's a, obviously a potential recession. We could go back and forth whether we're in it or not, um, and maybe even a global depression at this point. So, you know, I guess, how do you see uh, the Bitcoin reacting with all these various macro factors and the Fed kind of continuing to raise rates? 
Well, okay, let's uh, try and dissect uh, the reality of the uh, global macro TradFi scenario, which is rising interest rates and a risk-off um, uh, environment where Bitcoin is being improperly traded by traditional finance guys as a essentially a short volatility asset or correlated to other short volatility assets like equities, which is to say when you're, you're invested in a short volatility asset, when the VIX increases or volatility increases, you get hit because you're short it and it's going higher because you own an asset that goes down. So equities generally go down when volatility increases. So that's a short volatility asset. Uh, treasuries this year, this year have been a short volatility asset. They are traditionally more long volatility because when equity vol goes up, people run to the safety of treasury bonds, but that didn't work this year. The point is very simple. Bitcoin is not being properly traded, in my opinion, by the correlation traders on Wall Street because they don't understand it, that it's actually insurance. And when you own insurance, that's called a long volatility asset. But don't tell that to the idiot 24-year-old Ivy League fucks that have just come out of school and are programming their algos to, uh, to correlate and trade Bitcoin correlated to the NASDAQ. They'll figure it out someday. They'll get their balls squeezed off. Uh, when the world figures it out and they haven't adjusted their algos. But I, I digress. Let's not uh, get mad at them because so far they've been right and they have more money and they're able to make these correlations work until they don't, okay? And that's when they get, you know, their faces ripped off. Why? Because they're short something that is insurance. And when Russia announces they're pricing oil in Bitcoin, instead of being long it, they're short it and, guess what? They run to cover and so does everyone else. And there's a price spike that's monumental. But I wanted to also say within the digital asset ecosystem, there's been huge, huge uh, event risk that, that uh, you know, Bitcoin has hung in like a champ. So starting with Luna Terra or Terra Luna or whatever that Doquan idiot uh, uh, designed there, that stable coin, uh, algorithmic stable coin. Um, and then the fraud that's involved in the likes of Celsius and FTX. And look, Bitcoin, TikTok, next block, its price has gone down, but it's still, you know, above uh, prices of a couple of years ago. And that's very positive, in my opinion. So you have what the Fed's doing on a global macro basis and impacting risk assets to the extent that that drove the calamity at. Luna or Terra Luna? No, I don't think there was very much correlation in that at all. That was absolute stupidity of people like Novogratz promoting an algorithmic stablecoin that had no basis. They basically redesigned uh, Fiat. That's what Luna Terra was. Terra Luna was redesigned the Fiat system. So Novo, who's you know done pretty good risk management in his life, he got caught offside on that one. But then you get guys like uh, uh, outright fraud, like Celsius and Terra, uh, no, sorry, Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, there's no lender of last resort to backstop those institutions. So Bitcoin gets liquidated to help pay for some bills for other people that had exposure to some of these collapses. It's very positive, in my opinion, that you're cleansing the system and that Bitcoin still is at a price that's meaningfully you know, it's it's not a big asset, but at $350 billion, 
it's still a very large asset in the context of uh, some other equities, let's say, single name equities. So, you know, Bitcoin has hang in there. The direct correlation with Fed raising interest rates, uh, mistreated by Wall Street, but I think that'll change over time. Uh, did it uh, precipitate the collapse of the digital asset ecosystem? Perhaps a little bit, but that's healthy in my opinion, right? I get all these uh, fraudsters out of the system and, you know, these uh, 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 token, uh, you know, when you get airdrop tokens and all the stuff that uh, that goes along with the centralized tokens uh, and the fraud that goes on there. So Bitcoin, it's done pretty well, you guys. Um, it isn't been easy and... Uh, again, if you own too much of it and you were celebrating at 70,000, but you didn't take chips off the table and now it's 16,000, I bet you anything, your next sale, your next trade is a sale, not a purchase when in fact it should have been the reverse, right? When everyone's yelling, you're in there selling. When everyone's crying, you're in there buying. Well, the smart money has been buying because everyone's been crying. So they're in there buying and now you're seeing the price stabilize historic lows in volatility in the price of Bitcoin. And then a couple of good news headlines, a couple of stabilization in the Bitcoin mining ecosystem. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin feels like it's getting a little bit of a bid, but it doesn't matter because it's still so stupid cheap. It's only giving me a 1% chance that my $2 million price target is accurate. So then I don't overthink things. And I say, all right, try not to look at the price. Let's see where the price is in one year time. And that's, you know, the better way to, you know, not outthink yourself. Yeah. And so you, you brought up a lot of the fraud that, that has gone on, right? The FTX, the Celsius, and some of these other things, these Terra Luna and other big catastrophes in the digital asset space that have kind of, you know, I guess on the outside affected Bitcoin. But it seems like a lot of these exchanges have been issuing, you know, what, what we call the paper Bitcoin, that maybe they that when you buy it on some of these exchanges, they're not always truthful. And then when you try to you know, all of a sudden take it off, you don't have your actual Bitcoin, you just kind of have it sitting on an exchange. Do you think that that kind of uh, almost kept the price depressed? I mean, uh, at like the all time high, because I mean, we did get to, you know, 69k, 70k about, um, but you know, maybe I guess if it was actual Bitcoin, it would have been, I guess, realized it was a little bit more scarce and and uh, that price would have Could accelerated be. even more. Yeah. And then it's kind of stabilized down at the, the 20K range right now because uh -huh. of that. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And I guess, uh, you know, the, the overall like exchange ecosystem. Okay. Um, as you say to me, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's make sure that you understand that I believe that sh the ability to short an asset is absolutely essential to free market pricing and free market price discovery. Okay. So if I'm long something and someone's shorting it because they have an opposing view that I have, you can't get upset with them for doing it. You just hope that your thesis is right and that over time, they'll be forced to cover their short at higher prices. But even if they don't get forced to cover their shorts at higher prices, the fact that they are short can dampen any price swings that hurt you but gain them because eventually they have to come in and buy. And I think that's what happened by and large, with, if you remember, Terra Luna went from 42,000 down to 32,000 and then sort of stabilized at that level as that washed through the system. And then Celsius, FTX, and everything cut it in half down to 16,000. But if there weren't shorts in the market, 
Brandon, you would have seen the price fall much more precipitously, in my opinion. So you have to look at it as being positive in that effect. But then you get to this area where basically you're rehypothecating Bitcoin and everything, and they're on exchanges and they're selling you Bitcoin, paper Bitcoin that they don't actually own. That is a huge problem that is a fiat system legacy problem. Uh, that's why you have to you know, take your Bitcoin off of exchanges. You have to keep it in cold storage. But not everyone's going to do it that way. So this is part of the growing pains process. Um, but it will happen. It will happen as people realize the only way to not have counterparty risk in Bitcoin is to store your own Bitcoin. Otherwise, you have counterparty risk. And when you have counterparty risk, you are subject to uh, misbehaving uh, actors. You are subject to uh, contagion risk from other misbehaving act actors that cause your actors to have to liquidate some of their assets just because they had uh, clients that are telling them, I need to raise assets uh, or raise liquidity because I'm getting crushed on this other thing. So all of this contagion is eliminated only when you have uh, your own Bitcoin in cold storage. But listen, the Bitcoin maxis out there are doing an amazing job of educating the world how to do it properly. And, uh, you know, this is a 14-year-old asset that really is only less, in my opinion, seven, is seven years old. So we can only start really looking at Bitcoin as a true asset from 2015-ish, right around when Bitcoin first cracked $1,000 per Bitcoin US dollar mark. Before then, it was just too small. It was like a micro cap asset that real smart money couldn't get their teeth into. So it's seven years old. I've been in markets for 35 years. So it's only been around for one fifth of the time that I've actually been trading. And I'm not saying I'm anything special, except if you only survived 35 years, the only way you can is by when you make a mistake, you rectify it. You don't keep expanding or, uh, you know, digging yourself a deeper hole like uh, Peter Schiff does. So when you manage risk properly, as the information changes, you change your investment thesis. So look, I'm really only basing my experience on seven years. And so far, what I see is I really like the development of Bitcoin, the adoption, the smart people in this, uh, in this community Again, last night I was out with, you know, 15 other guys from New England, one one lady and 15 guys. So it was a bit of a sausage fest. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it was really fun. Uh, and I learned a lot of stuff from them. And it just gets, I'm sitting right beside this Indian guy, Ron, and he's just so into Bitcoin and just like such a young, enthusiastic computer science graduate that, you know, basically says stuff like, you know, Ethereum is absolutely going to zero. And I just like, look, okay, that's a cool opinion, but I just like uh, absorbing the uh, intelligence of these people. Of course, I mentioned Jason Lowry, but other people uh, in the Bitcoin community up here that uh, really have studied it for hundreds of hours and uh, have made a commitment to helping uh, the world uh, uh, embrace this beautiful technology. Yeah, and it definitely seems like, you know, this technology, not only whether it's, you know, people building on the Lightning Network or mining, uh, coming up with great solutions, it seems like everything's all, all of a sudden changing kind of around us. But I want to bring it back to the Fed real quick. We got a question mm -hmm. from the chat that the Fed's kind of blowing away, you know, everyone's prediction on the number of hikes, how quickly they've been doing it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the futures now has kind of 
you know, I guess priced in a 20, uh, almost a hundred percent guarantee of a 25 point uh, basis point hike at the next meeting in February. But, you know, I'm kind of under the the camp that I think that they're still going to hike around the 50 basis point and kind of, you know, continue throughout this year. Um, but, you know, you, you've described it as uh, they're just drunkenly just kind of keeping going through the motions. So, you know, how do you think that the, the, the I guess the market's kind of reacting and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what are any thoughts that you have on uh, the potential of this fallout as they continually kind of can uh, raise rates at, uh, you know, fast pace pace in history? Yeah. Well, again, we have to uh, wait for the penny to drop and the actual <coughs> um, results of their decisions 12 months ago. But less in the context, they've raised it to four and three eighths, <coughs> four and a half percent higher end target. Whether they raise 25 basis points or zero next time, I don't think they do 50. But even if they just do 25, it's still small in the context of everything they've done up until here. We're not really looking at the impact that this 25 basis points is having. We have to look back at the 75 basis points that they last did when rates went from three, I if I remember correctly, three to 375. Um, no one will ever know. Hindsight will always be perfectly uh, a perfect predictor in hindsight, but it's way too early to declare victory, uh, either a Fed soft landing or even victory over inflation, in my opinion. So let's, let's make sure that we aren't uh, bringing out the uh, confetti too early. Um, and then realize as well, maybe you should listen to a Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of America's largest bank, who says, uh, you know, maybe we should pause. Uh, don't forget, he has access to better data than anybody else in the world, including the Fed, okay? So if he says maybe we should pause, he's probably seeing something that has caused him to get a little concerned, whether that's delinquencies on credit cards for lower-income people, whether it's used car prices or dealerships doing stuff with used cars that are indicative of, uh, you know, uh, uh, loans that haven't been paid off on used cars and people are trying to buy a new car without even having paid off their used car and the dealer inventory is not taking that used car loan. They only want to fund the loan on the new car. They don't want to take up the loan on the old car. So all of this is indicative of Fed uh, or excuse me, a fiat system that always exacerbates the leverage uh, uh, each successive crisis in the system gets worse because the leverage is higher. Uh, the games get greater. And when you don't solve it from the great financial crisis in 2008, then every successive crisis after that becomes worse and more, uh, uh, it happens quicker. So all of this is to say that no one knows. I respect the question but it's way too early to declare victory. And I will also say it's almost a moot point. Even your 50 outlook, which I don't think is going to happen, but let's just take the mid market between zero and 50 is 25, 25 in the context of a four to 4.50 fed funds rate already. It's pretty, pretty little, right? It's not that it's, it's not as if the economy will be fine at four and a half percent, but if it hits four and three quarters, we're, we're in big trouble. We're either already in big trouble or that next 25 basis points is really not going to move the needle that much. What's been done is done and we have to see how all this stuff 
hits your windshield, so to speak. Okay. Cause we haven't even gone through the residue from this and there's going to be stuff hitting your windshield and we just got to be careful not to think it's clear sailing from here. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, it, you know, it's it's all Monday morning quarterback at this point, you know, the, yeah. the little American saying that we got down here. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to take one out of uh, your fellow Canadian, BTC Sessions. He always asks this and on oh. his Friday shows. But what, you're you're down in Boston. You're meeting a lot of Bitcoiners. You're traveling around, going to all these conferences. What makes you most bullish on the space <laughs> going forward in 2023? Great question. So shout out to Ben Sessions, just yeah. one hell of a guy. A great Canadian, as Don Cherry, who I don't know if you know who Don Cherry is, but he's a hockey commentator. A great Canadian boy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Two thumbs up, okay? So Ben Sessions. Um, what? Why am I bullish? I'm going to yeah. take a quote from Matt Odell. I'm super bullish on Bitcoin, but I'm super, super bullish on Bitcoiners, okay? I've never met a community of kids mostly that are younger than me. I mean, Larry Lapard is out there. He's a couple of years older than me, but I'm, I'm pretty old. All right. And so most of the people that I hang with and Larry hangs with, and we enjoy hanging with the younger kids. Uh, there's some really, really good people in this system. Uh, they're inquisitive. They are tough. They are hardworking. They do their homework. They don't take bullshit. Uh, I'm bullish on Bitcoiners. So why am I bullish on Bitcoin? Because I'm bullish on Bitcoiners, and I hope that sums it up. What a great community. Um, you know, men, women, different religions, color, uh, social beliefs, all of that come together and support a system that is going to change the world for the better, for the benefit of my kids. So, yeah, bullish on Bitcoiners. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it seems like, you know, the, the biggest positive that I've taken, especially during this bear market, is it seems like it's really been growing uh, the community. You know, we're getting a lot more Bitcoiners kind of come in and go to whether it's a local meetup or something along those lines. Um, and they're sticking around, right? They're sticking around when the price is down and we're not seeing a lot of people just FOMOing in and kind of getting rid of a lot of that fluff. It's the true, it's a true, uh, you, yeah, you're getting rid of the people that are in as a tourist, okay? You're getting rid of the Bitcoin tourists and you you have the real Bitcoin uh, population who are dedicated, who are uh, testing their thesis, right? Making sure they're not wrong. So they they look at it, they test the thesis, they say, okay, you know what? It's other people who are selling that are wrong. My thesis is still correct. And you then you just try not to get too fancy and pretend you can predict where the next $5,000 price move goes. If you look at it to the context of, uh, well, here, I'll summarize it this way. I first got involved in Bitcoin in 2016 after, you know, originally thinking it was the Ponzi until I eventually did some true research in it and realized, oh, my God, it's the solution to the fiat system. Um, so I get involved in 2016. It's 800 bucks US per Bitcoin. I can look you right in the eyes and your listeners right in the eyes and say this categorically right now, Bitcoin is a better investment at 16 or call it $20,000 US today than it was when I first got involved in 2016. So six years ago. Okay. Why is that the case? Well, we've seen central bank reactions to things like COVID. We have seen adoption of Bitcoin continue in countries like El Salvador and most excitingly, uh, uh, Africa. 
We have seen education. We've seen the blockchain TikTok next block. We've seen the security of the system increase. We've seen Fidelity come out with a price target, hold on to your hat, of a billion dollars. A billion. The fifth largest asset manager in the world is saying by the year 2050, Bitcoin could be worth a billion US dollars. Not in today's dollars, in 2050 dollars, which means your house is worth, I don't know, 10 million, even if you just own it right now and it's worth 500,000. But not even, I mean, 500,000 is a lot of money. But the point is, these are the type of research that gets people thinking. And um, yeah, so Bitcoin today is a better risk-adjusted investment than it was when I first got involved at under 1,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. And that's how you got to change your investment guidelines or philosophy as the information changes. Yeah, exactly. It's just math, right? That's that's your that's your saying. So. Math and probabilities. This is more. This is part of the probability, but probabilities are based on, based on mathematics. So you're 100 percent correct. Yeah, exactly. Well, Greg, you've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate you coming on. Why don't you tell the audience where they can find you and what you got going on? Sure. Well, you know what? Um, I'm uh, uh, proud to be. Uh, you know, a 60-year-old, almost 60-year-old uh, Bitcoiner that uses predominantly Twitter. Maybe I'm going to get to Noster at some point. Uh, haven't cracked that uh, egg yet, but uh, I'm on Twitter, at Foss, Greg Foss. I, I got a LinkedIn presence as well. Um, but I also go to Bitcoin meetups, you know, like I'm pretty open and with uh, going to places I traveled the uh, uh, extensively last year, was lucky enough to go to Amsterdam, Bulgaria, Edinburgh, Scotland, El Salvador, Pacific Bitcoin, Miami. Oh, Madeira. I forgot to mention Madeira. Great island. So I got uh, to know, I've got to know Bitcoiners all over the world and I'm a much uh, better person for it. So let's hope I can meet some of your listeners. Um, you know, I'm, in, I'm planning to be at Bitcoin Miami. I'm going this weekend to Bitcoin Naples. Um, sorry, it's not this weekend. It's uh, next weekend, the 21st of January. So yeah, you can find me in a, in a lot of different spots. Sometimes you'll find me, uh, you know, just hanging out at a, at a local watering hole. It's uh, crazy that it's sometimes I, I've been on the ski hill twice and, uh, I've met, uh, people in, in the ski lift lines that say, Hey, Greg Foss, I recognize your voice and it blows my buddies and my kids away that actually people recognize my voice. So yeah, I guess I have a bit of a distinct voice and I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but fuck you guys, okay? I have to say it because you're too damn stupid. You haven't understood how beautiful Bitcoin is yet. So do it for your kids. Uh, own a little Bitcoin. Get up to 5%. Do some more studying and then reap the rewards of the most beautiful technology and insurance policy that I have seen in 35 years. Exactly. And the, the Bitcoin scene's growing in Canada as well. I think that there's going to be a couple conferences there yep. this year too. So, uh, well, thanks to guys like Ben Sessions and Francis Pouliot and uh, uh, Jeff Booth, of course, a great Canadian Bitcoiner, Brad Mills, um, I, uh, NVK, Rodolfo. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting tons of them, but uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do some stuff in Canada. Um, we're trying to punch above our weight for a change. Uh, so, uh, thanks to guys like Jeff Booth. I think we're doing pretty good in, uh, in doing that. Uh, Ben Sessions, did I mention him or not? But look, all of these guys got videos, they got good stuff. They're doing conferences and I'm just happy to be a part of it. 
Exactly, exactly. So great stuff. And I was it was an honor to have you on. So I really appreciate it. Oh, and we'll have to do it again. And I, I'm sure I'll meet you in person. At some okay. Here, well, so. thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's very uh, good questions and uh, a real a real uh, pleasant afternoon. Thanks All a right. lot. Thanks, Greg. Have a good one.